Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for February 22nd, 2018. On today's show, we're going to dive into a bunch of news, including the late-breaking news that Joss Whedon is leaving the Batgirl movie, an overnight stay at Friday the 13th filming location, a new Star Wars TV series, Solo, a Star Wars story, gets some praise, James Bond 25 gets a screenwriter, Andy Serkis's Jungle Book film gets rated, and Hollywood is making a movie based on Flaming Hut Cheetos? We'll talk about that and more, and in the feature presentation, we'll try to untangle the timeline for the Phase 3 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is Peter Soretta, editor-in-chief of SlashFilm.com, and joining me on today's podcast is SlashFilm Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Chris Evangelista. Hello. Uh Guys, let's just dive in because we got a lot of news. I, I didn't have a lot of news on the schedule, and then all of a sudden, in the last like hour, some some bigger stuff broke, uh, including news that Josh Whedon is going to be exiting uh, DC's Batgirl movie. Ben, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Well, I know that there's a guy who's standing directly underneath my window right now, blowing <laughs> shit with this blower. So, <sighs> hang, hang on yeah. one second. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm totally leaving this into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hang on a second. Okay, so we're back. Ben has murdered the leaf blower man, and uh, <laughs> please tell us about Batgirl. Sure, yeah. So Joss Whedon is uh, officially out of the Batgirl movie. About a year ago, he signed on to write and direct uh, a film based on uh, Batgirl, which is Barbara Gordon in the DC Comics universe. She's the daughter of Commissioner Gordon and has taken on the cape and cowl of Batgirl and fights alongside Batman. And uh, yeah, after about almost a year, Whedon has officially left the project. He said, Batgirl is such an exciting project and Warners and DC uh, are such collaborative and supportive partners that it took me months to realize I didn't really have a story. Uh, He said, I'm grateful to Jeff Johns and Toby Emmerich and everybody who was so welcoming when I arrived and so understanding when I, uh, is there a sexier word for failed? So that was his official statement. 
some sources tell the Hollywood Reporter that after a year of trying, he just couldn't crack the script of of what a Batgirl movie should be. And, um, you know, for from our perspective, when Ween was hired, I mean, it's a decision that looked good on paper because of his experience in the comic book realm. Um, He had jumped from Marvel Studios, obviously, over to DC. He's he had. Uh, I don't think at that point he had come on to work on Justice League yet, but no, and he, he has, had a obviously. huge history of uh, of big, strong female characters in his story. Yes, too. exactly. Um, yeah, and but sort of even at the time we were like a little uneasy about the idea of Whedon directing a, a Batgirl movie just because um, it seemed like a t- kind of a half step backwards for what Hollywood, the decisions that Hollywood seemed to be making, you know, in terms of uh, being progressive and, and inclusive and representation, you know, uh, including um, better diversity and, and representation behind the camera as well. Um so the idea that like a middle-aged white guy is directing a movie about Batgirl is like a little, it's, it's not the greatest thing in the world. Um, especially when there are so many other people who have the, the talent to do something like that. So I, I think, you know, while it's kind of a blow to this movie in the short term, I hope ultimately this is, uh, the right move, um, in the long run for what is ultimately going to be a really cool movie about a really cool character who definitely deserves her own film. And it certainly doesn't help that, uh, Whedon's ex-wife came out with like a hit piece against him, basically accusing him of being, uh, a fake feminist and, uh, someone that had cheated on her throughout her marriage. Um, that, that got a lot of, uh, a play around the interwebs, including, uh, the, the biggest Josh Whedon fan site, that had been around for, I think, like 15, 20 years, shutting down um, in, in the wake of that news. Uh, so, uh, Brad, do you have any thoughts on uh, who should direct a Batgirl movie? Okay, so uh, if we want a female director to direct Batgirl, who should it be, Ben? Uh, how about Greta Gerwig? <laughs> that strikes me as, uh, I mean, that would be kind of cool, right? Like a, a more introspective superhero movie. Um, you know, somebody La- Lady who... Bat. Yeah, <laughs> Lady Bat. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I would see it. <laughs> Definitely after Lady Bird, I, w- I would see anything she makes. Okay, let's move on to Star Wars. Uh, we have seen Disney register a new Star Wars title. Could this be Lucasfilm's Star Wars live action TV series? Brad, you're it out for the site. What do we know? Lucasfilm has apparently registered uh, a bunch of new trademarks using the title Star Wars Resistance. Uh, they've used this title to register um, trademarks for a bunch of different merchandise, promotional items, everything ranging from uh, the usual toys and games to much more specific things like Christmas stockings and stationery and uh, sunglasses and swimming masks and all the things that uh, Disney likes to slap all their characters on and sell to families and kids for birthdays and Christmas. What's interesting about this is that uh, Lucasfilm registers trademarks all the time for for all the titles um, that they create for all their various intellectual properties. But usually when it's a title that is something small like a comic book or a mobile game or something like that, um, you don't see trademarks getting registered for all of this stuff because they don't really intend to make those things out of the smaller things like you know we, you can't really buy t-shirts that have 
images from the Poe Dameron comic book on it or uh, even the Battlefront video games. So since all this stuff is being registered, it seems like the Star Wars Resistance title, whatever it is, is going to be a big deal. And um, more than likely, this could end up being the title of one of the several Star Wars series that are in development and likely intended to be on the Disney streaming service when that debuts in 2019. Now, um, the, do, you, do you think this is the live action series or the animated series? I think it's more likely that this is the animated series um, for two reasons. First of all, Lucasfilm has been looking for new people uh, for their animation department to uh, work on a project with the creators of Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. Uh, there's a job right now on Lucasfilm for uh, an animation production supervisor. Um, and we've heard rumblings that they're already getting to work on whatever the next animated series that will follow Star Wars Rebels will be. Along with that, um, about four years ago, when Star Wars Rebels was sort of just taking off, um, we had word that they already knew when Star Wars Rebels was going to end. The estimate was that they were only going to do three or four seasons, um, and we're currently in the fourth and final season of the show. And that after Star Wars Rebels, they had already knew that they were going to create another animated series that was going to take place in the era of the new Star Wars trilogy. So, if the new animated series is indeed Star Wars Resistance, that would take place concurrently with the events of the current Star Wars trilogy. And since Star Wars The Last Jedi uh, just recently featured quite the spark that will... Uh, ignite the flame that will be the resistance fighting back even harder against the first order than they were before i think it would stand to reason that this will be the new animated series that we heard about uh, a few years back so the question is when will it be set could it could be set before force awakens or it could be set between last jedi and episode nine especially where they leave you know the resistance at the end of last jedi you know it's kind of this ragtag group again do you have any thoughts on that yeah, I mean that's you're exactly right. There's I imagine that now that the story of um you know Luke Skywalker's defiance of the first order and uh tr you know inspiring people around the galaxy to fight back against against them, uh there'll be a lot more new factions popping up supporting the resistance and uh there'll, there'll probably be a group somewhere that won't have necessarily direct ties to characters like Rey and Finn and and Poe. So that way we can follow them much in the same way that we've been following the ghost crew as they've been going on various missions that um, impact the events of the future original Star Wars trilogy as far as the Star Wars timeline is concerned, but don't necessarily always uh, interact with any of the um, characters that we know from the original trilogy. Now, there is also the possibility that this could be the live-action TV series, and that gives me a little bit of worry because, you know, a show called Star Wars Resistance sounds to me like, uh, you know, Disney's versions of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. set in the Star Wars universe, and I could totally see them doing, like, a, a lower-budget take because, you know, the Resistance hides out in these, like, small kind of uh, bases, which uh, is probably very uh, budget-friendly for a streaming service TV show. Uh, but I hope it is not. I hope it's the uh, new animated series that we've been hearing about. Uh, but let's move on to another thing in Star Wars universe, and that is Solo, a Star Wars story. It's being called uh, a lot more fun than the other films in the franchise by star Donald Glover. Ben, what do we know? 
So in an interview with uh, Entertainment Tonight, Donald Glover was asked how Solo, a Star Wars story, will be tonally different than the other movies in the franchise. And he said, I think it's just a lot more fun. All these Star Wars are really fun. But I think this movie, we know what's going to happen. We know they're not going to die. We know kind of what happens. But how we got there is, I guess, the crux of it. So we're allowed to have a lot more fun than I think in the other movies where you have to deal with a lot of lineage and what's going to happen. I think this movie is just a fun summer film. I'm really excited about it. It's really cool. So this, uh, you know, I think before Woody, uh, Woody Harrelson, who is the co-star in Solo, A Star Wars Story, before uh, Phil Lord and, and Chris Miller, the original directors, were booted from that movie, I remember Woody Harrelson talking about how he was expecting Solo could could be, quote unquote, the best Star Wars movie yet. Um, but obviously a lot has changed since then. So I like the idea of, of sort of uh, transitioning expectations from the best to maybe the most fun. Um, but I, that raises an interesting question that I would love to hear you guys chime in on. Uh, I know Brad and and Peter are huge, huge Star Wars fans, but uh, let's go to Chris first. What do you think is the most fun Star Wars movie so far? Not the best and not even the most Star Wars, but just the most purely fun Star Wars film. I guess I would say Force Awakens for me is the most fun. I mean, it's the one I found most entertaining. That's, but that's me personally. But uh, I mean, I I like Star Wars. I'm not like the biggest Star Wars fan, but I like all the films uh, except for the prequels. But uh, the Force Awakens is the one I most enjoyed, and it's the most the one I most enjoy watching to rewatching. Yeah. What about uh, Peter and Brad? What do you guys think? You know. I, I, I would have to agree with Chris. I think uh, Force Awakens is the most rewatchable Star Wars movie, and it has the most fun moments. And um, I don't know. Uh, you know, obviously, Empire is my favorite. Last Jedi is in that same vein, like, serious and has, like, these cool, oh, shit moments. But I feel like for fun, it has to be – it has to be – yeah, I, I think it has to be um, Force Awakens or – you know, don't kill me. Uh, maybe uh, Return of the Jedi is is some fun too. What about you, Brad? Uh, yeah, I, I'm I mostly agree with the Force Awakens assessment, but I, I was actually going to say that um, in spite of how much hate there is for the Ewoks, I think Return of the Jedi is a really fun movie. Um, it's definitely the most fun that Harrison Ford has as Han Solo in the entire trilogy. The um, the banter between him and him and Leia is is great in that one. Uh, not quite as good as it is in Empire, but it's it's a little bit more uh, more straightforward, playful. Um, and I think that yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think that Return of the Jedi has has a lot of fun moments to it as well. Yeah, in my article, I I also like my heart goes with the Force Awakens, but because uh, a planet or multiple planets actually in that movie are destroyed in that movie, and nothing quite so damaging happens in Return of the Jedi, I ended up sort of defaulting to Return of the Jedi. But I think my uh, my allegiances lie with you, Chris, in, in that uh, the Force Awakens is probably the most rewatchable, the most fun one for me personally. Now, um, you know, we never can trust someone that's involved in a film uh, praising that that project because it's obviously they they have uh, not just personal ties. Not only have they spent months working on it, but they have financial stakes in in, in the film doing well. Uh, But it is interesting how many times Donald Glover uses the word fun in this. And it kind of makes me wonder, uh, do you think, you know, there was a lot of – backlash when lord miller kind of got kicked off this project and were replaced by ron howard do you think 
you know, a lot of fans were were worried that they were going to go for a more traditional Star Wars movie and not do a funny and fun Star Wars movie that was seemingly planned with this solo origin story. Do you think at all that this could possibly be the result of, you know, Disney's uh, PR and crisis management team, like kind of instilling on the actors, like, you know, if, if you get asked about this movie, fun, fun, funny, fun. Hmm. No, uh, that's the cynical way of looking at it. Sure. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, so, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. I would like to take him at his word on this. But yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, there are there have been countless times where people have hyped up movies that they've been involved with when they've known full well that they were giant turds uh, just because that's basically part of playing the game, you know? Yeah. And it should be mentioned, you know, when people hype up those things, typically it's before they've seen a final cut of the film. And you can make an entire movie. I've talked to, you know, actors and filmmakers that have made movies and they had no idea if it was that bad or good until they saw the final cut. Like, you know, the atmosphere and set in making the movie can be totally different than what the resulting product ends up being. So, um, yeah. Anyways, let's move on. Uh Earlier this week, we talked about James Bond and how Danny Boyle is in line to direct uh, the latest movie, the 25th film. And now we have learned we have a screen a screenwriter. Chris, what do we know? Yeah, so the, the story expanded a bit to reveal that uh, John Hodge, who also wrote Train Spotting and several other Danny Boyle films, uh, including like The Beach and Shallow Grave, uh, he's now working on a brand new script. Um, MGM already has a script written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who worked on Casino Royale and Skyfall and Spectre. But what's happening now basically is Hodge is working on a script strictly for Boyle. And if MGM likes this script, they're going to then go forward with Boyle. But if MGM doesn't like this, it's likely Danny Boyle will not direct the film. So in other words, Danny Boyle will only make the film if MGM uses John Hodge's script. So that's where we are right now, which is a little, uh, I don't want to use the word alarming, but it's kind of (laughs) frustrating to learn that, you know, they've had all this time and they still haven't really locked down a script yet. It just seems like they're, they're sort of winging it with the next James Bond film, which might not be the best approach. Uh, but let's move on to our last story, which is probably our strangest story of the week, and that is a Flaming Hut Cheetos movie is in the works. Ben, why? <laughs> so to be clear, this is not a a Chester Cheetah biopic. This is <laughs> uh, it, it's it sounds bizarre, and it's a it's a eye grabbing headline for sure that that Fox Searchlight is making a movie based on Flame and Hot Cheetos. But the reality is uh, is a little bit simpler than that, and it is actually the true story of Richard Montanez, who was a janitor at Frito Lay. And he was the person who came up with the concept of the Flamin' Hot Cheetos. And he, I guess, brought that idea to the company and it ended up being massively successful. Variety says that uh, it transformed the Frito-Lay brand into a pop culture phenomenon and disrupted the entire food industry in the process. That seems a little extreme to me for Flamin' Hot Cheetos. But the point stands that this guy who was, you know, a quote-unquote lowly janitor at this company uh, had this idea and was able to, um, 
you know, push it through to the, the upper echelons of the company. And it turned him from a janitor into a, quote, elite corporate executive. So uh, that's a pretty awesome sort of rags to riches story. And Hollywood loves rags to riches stories. And to me, it seems like um, you know, maybe like an answer to something like The Founder, which was uh, maybe a, a movie that was a little darker and, and about, uh, you know, frankly, like an asshole in the <laughs> in the food industry. And this seems like a, more of a, a pure hearted kind of a heartwarming kind of thing. So um, <laughs> now that you know what it's actually about, Peter, are you actually interested in this? I, I am. Um, I, I guess what bothers me now, you know, at first it sounded like, you know, the guys at Fox Search were like, Disney's buying us. What can we make to be like the biggest FU to them? But uh, <laughs> but no, now that I've heard uh, what this is about, it does make sense. It just it bothers me when like movies like this are made kind of in the moment uh, because traditionally a lot of these movies don't end up being as great as the social network. They usually end up being, you know, something that lacks the perspective of, you know, having years like I like a film like The Founder, I think, benefits from, you know, having that uh, hindsight perspective of, uh, you know, what happened and what resulted from it. And it, it does worry me that Hollywood sometimes jumps onto these trends of, you know, like after 9-11 happened, there was a series of 9-11 movies, not that they were bad, but like, I feel like. Uh, those kind of things work better when when you kind of have a perspective of it from down the road. Mm-hmm. Chris, yeah. do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like nothing I would ever want to see. But I said the same thing when they announced a Facebook movie, and then that turned into the Social Network, which is an excellent film. So I won't. I'll try not to judge it too harshly yet. Yeah. Uh, who do we want to see d- direct the Flaming Hot Cheetos movie? Chester the Cheetah. <laughs> okay. Um, let's move on to our feature presentation. And that is Ben wrote this article on, on the site uh, today called Untangling the Marvel Studios Phase 3 Timeline. Uh, so I guess we're going to have spoilers for all the Marvel Cinematic Universe films released thus far and maybe some speculation about the future. Um but it is interesting because these Marvel Cinematic Universe films have uh, are not all in the order that it takes place over, the, you know, like obviously Captain America takes place way before Iron Man 1. Uh, actually, to catch us up on all this, uh, Brad, you cover the superhero bit with superhero uh, uh, bits on the site. Uh, can, can you tell us, like, what is the order of the Phase 1 and Phase 2 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Uh, so yeah, chronologically, like you just said, we start off with Captain America, the first Avenger. Uh, then we move on through to the, what was the first movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that kicked everything off, which is Iron Man. Uh, following that we have Iron Man 2, the Incredible Hulk and Thor. What's interesting about those three movies is that they all kind of take place within the same week. There's a lot of overlapping events. You might remember in, Iron Man 2, when Coulson is called in to keep an eye on Stark, he mentions having to deal with something in New Mexico, and that's a reference to S.H.I.E.L.D. finding Thor's hammer in the middle of the desert in New Mexico. And since that's since they find Thor's hammer there, that means that the events of Thor overlap with the events of Iron Man 2, because Thor begins before Thor's hammer ends up on Earth, and then unfolds after that, after he gets his hammer back and, and all that jazz. So then after we've introduced all of the Avengers and we move on to uh, the Avengers in 2012 and then uh, phase two begins with Iron Man three continues with Thor the Dark World 
uh, moves on to Captain America, the Winter Soldier. And then uh, both of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies take place essentially uh, back to back. There's nothing in between them chronologically. Then we have Avengers Age of Ultron. to Ben because he's kind of been trying to figure out the order of Phase 3 because Phase 3 is a little bit more complicated than the previous two phases. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as Brad was saying, a lot of the, you know, when Marvel first got started, you could essentially watch the movies in like real time almost as uh, as they were coming out. And that would be, you know, a pretty accurate way to do it. But as the, you know, Black Panther is the 18th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So things have have, as you might have expected, uh, gotten a little bit more complicated with all of these different timelines that they have to juggle and all these different characters and different locations and realms and gods and humans and all this kind of stuff. So uh, Civil War takes place about a year after the events of Age of Ultron. Doctor Strange is the one that seems maybe the most nebulous as to exactly when it begins or ends because there's so much time in there that isn't, you know, explicitly uh, marked off in that movie over how long Stephen Strange trains and learns to become the Sorcerer Supreme. But I think the general agreed upon notion is that it starts somewhere around the time of civil war maybe right before that and ends you know months or even years afterwards because as we saw in that film's post credit scene he speaks with thor and that that sort of catches us up with thor ragnarok um so guardians of the galaxy volume two as brad said takes place only a few months after the events of the first uh, guardians movie so that means that film is set in 2014 spider-man homecoming is the weird one because that film is actually set in the year 2020 um where you know before they marvel tried to go out of their way to make it as easy as possible and and um as real time as possible but because uh spider-man homecoming opens with that uh, sort of uh, i guess like a prologue where michael keaton's adrian tombs is uh, working on in the salvage operation in the wake of the Battle of New York that happened at the end of The Avengers, um, the movie jumps ahead eight years. And we know The Avengers takes place in 2012, so that means that eight years after that would be 2020, not 2017, when that movie actually came out. So that one's a little bit of a head-scratcher, and I think they did that largely because... um, Kevin Feige has said that he wants the future Spider-Man solo films to also be set in high school. That was a big part of why they hired Tom Holland in the first place was because he was a, a younger actor who could, you know, bring that care. I think uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, he plays a sophomore in high school. So the next Homecoming 2 or whatever that movie is ultimately going to be called is going to be um, Peter Parker as a junior in high school. And I think they'll probably end up doing a third Spider-Man where he's a, a senior as well. So because there's so many other Marvel movies in between the release of Homecoming and the release of Homecoming 2, um, they had to sort of bump up the timeline and uh, and set Homecoming in 2020. So then uh, Thor Ragnarok takes place right before Avengers Infinity War, because in the post credits scene of that movie, we see Thor and Asgard, the, the ship that contains those guys, coming face-to-face with uh, Thanos' ship. And then Black Panther, as we just saw, which is in theaters right now, takes place just about a week or so after the events of Civil War. Um, Ant-Man and the Wasp, which was another one that has not been released yet, the trailer indicates that that movie uh, also takes place right after Civil War, and then Captain Marvel, which we know is a prequel, that one's set in the 1990s. So that's sort of, uh, you know, hopefully, it's sort of uh, do, do we know uh, when Infinity War through. starts? 
Um, I mean, I think I think we can assume that it, it takes place uh, in 2019 in the Marvel Universe. Um, but <laughs> I guess until we actually see that movie, we're not 100% certain of that fact. Okay, so th- um, and some people have said that uh, some of these end credit scenes, like the end credit scenes with uh, scene with Bucky, kind of like put a we like it doesn't make sense of like where it fits in the canon some people are having problems with that uh have you seen any issues with like then credit scenes kind of putting it out of whack yeah i mean there's a lot i mean if you really sit down and try to i mean i i did the best i could trying to parse through all this stuff but there are still some things that aren't fully aligned and it really um all we're going to be doing is waiting for Marvel to actually release an official, uh, you know, like a a confirmed timeline until we can narrow these things down. But so basically we're all just doing guesswork until we hear officially from them what's going on, because they actually a few years ago released an official infographic in a book called the art of the Avengers. And that um, confirmed their cinematic universe timeline, but that was only up until the Avengers came out in 2012. So we're basically still waiting on the follow-up for that, for them to actually, you know, release this, this, uh, I guess, canonical document that says exactly when all these things fall into place. But it's interesting to me because uh, Kevin Feige has said before that that, you know, people love to talk about the studio's long term plans. And he says, quote, but very rarely do those long term plans dictate the specificity of an individual film. It's usually the opposite. It's focusing on a story and focusing on the individual movie that we're making to do what's best. And then if something changes that we weren't quite expecting down the line because it was made for a better movie, then we deal with it down the line. So that was his quote. And that that sort of, to me, um, means that Feige and, and the people at Marvel are really making the right decision, which is we're going to do whatever we need to do to tell these specific stories that we're telling. And if it doesn't quite 100 percent line up, we'll sort of figure that out when we get to it and, and you know, figure out workarounds. I think famously uh, there was um, an image in the original Thor movie of uh, Thanos's Infinity Gauntlet that was in Odin's vault. And then as we found out in the events of Thor Ragnarok, that ended up being, I think Kevin Feige came out and said that that was just a fake uh, Infinity Gauntlet. That's not the real one because we've seen that Thanos actually has the real one. So there are some things like that where... Yeah, we, they, they actually addressed in, it uh, on screen, I believe. What was it? Hella picked it up and said fake or something? Yeah, you know, like, I think yeah. so, yeah. I don't recall this specifically yeah, she, yet. Yeah, she, she knocks it over and she just goes, fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there are things like that where, you know, those, that was a moment that was uh, explicitly designed to serve as a retcon to something that had happened before. And they had no idea in 2010 exactly how detailed their stuff was going to be you know, it's seven, almost a decade later. So, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's t- kind of tough to line this stuff up and, and nail it down precisely. But I feel like if ignoring a really small aspect, like a, some specific date means that a director is free to tell the story that they want to tell, that's more valuable to me than, yeah. you know, the internal satisfaction of knowing that everything fits perfectly and clicks into place on this grand timeline. It's interesting because, um, you know, obviously these like end credit sequences take place kind of like later at some points. Like, you know, there's big time gaps, even in the movies, you know, Stephen Strange is trained and then it's years later in, you know, the, the final crux of the film, uh, Mm -hmm. the, uh, one of my friends and colleagues, uh, Silas Lesnick, 
who used to write for comingsoon.net uh at one point i think when avengers age of ultron was coming out him and uh eric eisenberg of uh, cinema blend they edited together all the marvel movies up until that point in chronological order like even taking scenes like you know a scene from you know the incredible hulk and put it in you know the middle of captain america or whatever it was oh like flashbacks yeah stuff? like so exactly like seeing the whole thing chronological order and then they held the screening i didn't get to go to it but it was like you know like a 20-hour screening or something of like the, the whole thing in order <laughs> uh, and I, I i i've I'm just wondering, is anybody going to do that once once we complete phase three? Is anybody going to, you know, put the masterwork of 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 creating? I mean, if once you put the TV TV stuff into the works, like that would just be painful to watch, I think. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Chris, I know uh, the other day I was talking to you and you kind of have this theory on the end credit sequences. Uh, can you talk about it? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I always feel like the end credit scenes and the mid credit scenes aren't really canonical. I don't know. Maybe I'm like silly about that. But I mean, personally speaking, the way I see it is if it is important to the story, if it's central to the story, it would be in the film itself. It would be in the actual body of the film. It wouldn't be after the credits. I always felt like the after the credit stuff was just supposed to be sort of like fun little things for fans. I never really took them as seriously as apparently other people do, <laughs> but that's that's how I've always looked at them, that they're they're not really set in stone. They're just meant to be, you know, teasers basically, and you shouldn't take them too seriously. Yeah, there there are a lot of um faults i think in in these end credit scenes like you know thanos at the end of uh which movie but he went into a vault and he said he put on the the gauntlet and said fine i'll take care of it myself and now we know in infinity war that he's going to have this whole uh group of uh helpers so like it, it like doesn't make sense like when was that scene of him putting on the gauntlet and saying he's going to take care of it himself it just, right yeah um so i mean your theory might be correct i think uh, they're just, yeah. they're just similar yeah there's a similar discrepancy with the uh the credit scene um at the end of captain america civil war because it shows peter parker back in his bedroom after the events of civil war and he's got like a black eye and he's told a lie to aunt may about how he got in a fight with somebody at school named steve um and you know he says he's like i got a few punches in there and then like after may leaves the room he gets out the little like wrist uh technology that he has for a spider-man suit uh, and projects like the hologram of his logo onto the ceiling and we obviously see that when he comes back after civil war in spider-man homecoming that's not at all what happens so oh and there's also i I didn't really think about that until you just brought that up brad but that also um makes it seem like he's hiding his identity from aunt may but as we learned in at the very end of spider-man homecoming she finds out that he's spider-man so there's no no to be fair that still works because that's the end of civil war would be before spider-man homecoming oh right 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 okay yeah jeez yeah yeah. this stuff is like it's it's you can really get lost in like this whirlpool of insanity if you try to die i i barely surfaced peter when i came out of this thing alive yesterday (laughs) the funny thing the funny thing to me is that the the credit scenes i think marvel maybe used to take a little bit more seriously as far as canon is concerned because um, they they actually created a Marvel one shot that worked as a retcon for the credit scene from Incredible Hulk because oh, yeah. they had they had because they had to make it seem like it wasn't Tony's idea 
to put together the Avengers that it was Nick Fury's, whereas in the credit scene of The Incredible Hulk, it's Tony who comes to talk to Thunderbolt about the team, and they made up this whole thing about how S.H.I.E.L.D. like concocted a plan to turn Thunderbolt off of doing it because Stark would like not be the person that anyone would want to agree to do it with or something like that. Though It was really convoluted and unnecessary. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and they have gotten more jokey as time has gone by. Maybe, maybe that's just like the Guardians of the Galaxy effect of things. But like, you know, will we ever find out what happened to that alien creature that is, uh, you know, that huge alien creature that was set loose in London at the end of uh, <laughs> Thor: The Dark World? Probably not. Um, yes, but uh, I think this we've gone too long with this already. Uh, we're, we're not going to do the outro today. I'm just going to say that you can find more of this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, you can find all the stories we've talked about today, including Ben's untangling the Marvel Studios Phase 3 timeline on SlashFilm.com. And uh, please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Spread the word. Tell your friends. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>